1: American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co host, Dolores Alfieri, and we have another really interesting and pretty deep episode actually today for you where we dive into some of the topics around your identity as an Italian-American, maybe some of the things that you may have struggled with as you grew up an Italian-American. And we have a very special guest in Maria Lorino who we're going to talk to, who's the author of the Italian-American's A history book, which is the companion book to the PBS series by John Maggio. Dolores, how you doing?
2: I'm doing well, Anthony. Thank you. Yeah, we've just got another terrific guest on the show today. Maria really contributed to such a vibrant conversation between the three of us that I think will really resonate with our listeners. We just covered so many aspects of what it means to identify or to not identify right, as an Italian-American, and also so much of our history as a people. She was wonderful to speak with.
1: She was, and what you'll hear in this interview is she really gets into some of the things that happened to her as a kid growing up, Italian-American, some of the things that people would say about her and say about Italians and how much, you know, kind of like it affected her. And so that's a pretty powerful part of this interview. And we're going to actually jump right into it because it's a pretty deep and detailed interview. So with that, I'm going to read a paragraph from Maria's book to bring us into the interview. Over 150 years after the first immigrant journey, Italian-American culture is deeply infused into the landscape. In government, business, education, film, food, theater, television, literature, art, and sports, the contributions are countless. The immigrants' values and traditions not only have given Americans things that we love, but remind us of what we lack. All right Now it's time for our main segment of the show, and we are really excited to have a special guest here with us today. We have Maria Loreno. Maria began her journalistic career at The Village Voice, where she was a staff writer covering local and state politics and social issues such as New York's exploding housing market and the resulting surge in its homeless population. In 1989, Maria became the chief speechwriter for New York City Mayor David Dinkins, serving until the end of his term in 1993, at which time She then returned to freelance journalism, and she wrote for numerous publications, including New York Times, and her essays have been widely anthologized. Her first memoir, Were You Always an Italian?, which was published in in 2000 by W.W. Norton, was a national bestseller and and explored the issue of ethnic identity among Italian-Americans, which is something we're going to talk to Maria quite a bit about today. Her second memoir, Old World Daughter, New World Mother?, again published by Norton in 2009, examined the pull and tug the author experience between old world traditions that valued familial dependence and the new world feminism that prized female autonomy. And then in 2014, she published The Italian Americans, A History, which chronicled the Italian American experience from 1860 to the present day. It is the companion book to the PBS series of the same name, which is a, an amazing book that I just read, and we'll dive into that one as well. And lastly, Maria is currently teaching creative nonfiction at New York University. So with that, Maria, welcome to the Italian American Podcast.
3: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I think kind of the first thing that we'll talk about even before we get into your career as a writer and discuss some of your work, maybe you could start by introducing yourself and telling, telling us about your childhood growing up as an Italian American.
3: Sure, Absolutely. And again, I just want to thank you guys for creating this podcast and this format in order for us to discuss our stories that way. One thing I always talk about when I I teach and think about the essay is that in our personal, we can often find the universal. So I hope we can share that with each other. Uh, Yeah, I grew up as a third generation Italian-American in northern New Jersey, a community Milburn, Short Hills. And one thing I want to just say as I describe that is that I've, I've realized over the years when I've talked about my work that even among Italian-Americans, there's a, a confusion among us on exactly what generation we are. When I grew up, my mother always told me that I was a second-generation Italian-American because she was the first born in America and my father, that my grandparents came here. I discovered when I was researching my first book, where I was in Italian, that anthropologists actually don't use that distinction. They call the first generation who came here the first generation, because if they were the immigrants, as they are, you could identify them as that when they, let's say they came here when they were 20 years old, when they're 90, what are they? Are they still the immigrants? So they refer to them as the first generation. But I know that a lot of Italian-Americans don't see themselves that way. And I've actually had people get angry with me when I've done <laughs> Q&As after a book reading saying, I am second generation. And that's, <laughs> and I realize that even that is another aspect of our identity of what generation we are. Mm. But But I go with that distinction that I had read about in my research, that my grandparents were the first generation who came here. And I am purely Southern Italian from the regions of Avellino and Basilicata, uh, my mother's family from Avellino, my father's family from Basilicata. And my grandparents settled in a, eventually they settled in Maplewood, New Jersey, which is a, a very lovely suburb in New Jersey. So my mother had the same issues early on that I faced when I was much older of, I mean, when I was coming of age, excuse me, of being an immigrant's child in a very kind of tony suburb, you know, where there weren't a lot of other immigrants. And they were very waspy, very American. Mm. And she felt extremely out of place. My grandfather had a construction company, started a construction company that is extremely successful today that my cousin took over. But he would drive his daughters to school in a pickup truck. And all of their friends would come in fancy cars. And they were very embarrassed by that. But my mother loved the area. My father grew up in, a, in an Italian enclave of a similar area, Milburn, New Jersey. And so they settled eventually with their family in Short Hills. Short Hills is a very upper-middle-class suburb, and we lived in a very middle-class section of it. My father didn't go into construction, unfortunately. so we lived <laughs> in an area. and uh, And that really shaped my identity because when we moved into the neighborhood... And there was a tremendous amount of prejudice at that time. I grew up; I was a child in 1960, an infant, but I grew up there in the in the 70s. But neighbors would comment, "There's another uh, Italian American. Um, There's another Italian moving in." They'd never say Italian American moving into the block, and they didn't. They said that disparagingly. So from the very start, we found ourselves as outsiders in this suburban community, and that helped you know, shape how I was thinking about ethnicity and me wanting to fit in.
1: So your first book was the memoir that really explored this this issue of ethnic identity among Italian Americans. Talk to us a little bit about why you wrote that book and some of the things maybe you learned through that process about yourself.
3: No, absolutely. I was a journalist as a village voice. I was having a Wonderful time there, writing about these issues that you mentioned at, at the beginning of the podcast of social issues and social injustice. And um, and I think that as one of the reasons I wanted to be a journalist is because a sense of injustice that fuels me anytime I perceive a sense of injustice. So along with these kinds of issues, these social political issues I was writing about, I started to write about cultural issues too. And I began to realize that this was an, a nagging issue for me were this sort of injustice I saw on how Italian Americans were treated in the larger society. And I saw that injustice in two ways, in issues of class and in issues of stereotypes. Stereotypes, you know, very easy, obvious one. All of the Godfather stuff, all, not, I'm not even saying if they're good or bad movies. I think they're good movies, but I think <laughs> with them carried this stereotype. Uh, when I was in college, good friend of mine said to me, you know, he didn't even know he was insulting me. Every time he saw an Italian American who was wealthy, he would say to me, you think mafia? Mm. You know, that kind of stuff, which was just shocking. This was at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., you know, at a place where you didn't really think people would be saying those kinds of things. And I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe how long that stereotype had persisted and how foreign and alien that was to my experience as an Italian-American. And then at the same time, I was reading a lot of work uh, by George Orwell, George Orwell's nonfiction, not so much the 1984 Animal Farm, which I had read in high school, but his nonfiction essays and memoirs, which I thought were brilliant. And one thing that Orwell was very, very perceptive about was class. And he was writing about class society in England in several of his works, would write about how he perceived that he smelled badly and that often people believe the lower classes smell because they want to distance themselves from that. And when I read that in several of his books, this light went off in my head. And I began to realize that when I was in high school, girls would very casually talk about the smelly Italians. And we were, the Italian-American population was a minority in that high school. And I remember a girl who was a friend of mine saying that her father was going to Italy on vacation. And I said, oh, are you come, are you going with him? I'd never been to Europe. I was extremely excited about it. And she said, uh, oh, you think I would spend my time with those smelly Italians? Oh,
0: yes. And
3: then she recognized who she said it to and got really embarrassed. Another friend would constantly refer to me as the smelly Italian girl who stood behind me in gym class. And my other friends would say, that that's not you. I don't know what, what that's about. Mm. And I began to realize that there was this link between who people wanted to create as the lower class in this affluent suburb. And they they picked on the Italian-Americans. And that really outraged me. And so I decided to that I would write a book that talked about these issues. And I wrote this essay on this notion of Italian-American and smells in class. And I had submitted it along with a book proposal that would be a more reported story of Italian-Americans. And I had my wonderful editor, Elaine Mason at Norton, Elaine Salierno Mason, read the essay and said, no, no, write a book of these kinds of stories, which was a gift to me that I was able to do that for my first book. At the same time, when I was at The Voice, I wrote a very lengthy feature on Mario Cuomo, who was then the governor of New York. And I wanted to write about how ethnicity helped form him in such an important way. And I had several long interviews with him. And in one of them, I'll never forget this. I was trying to place him in an ethnic cultural tradition. And so I said to him, did Fiorello LaGuardia affect you at all as, you know, who you were as a as a, a politician. Did Vito antonio the congressman from East Harlem, who was very progressive. And I went through this whole list. And the governor looked at me and he said, Were you always an Italian? <laughs> and that question just it was another, you know, bolt. It was another strike because I thought, that's a brilliant question you could say that about any hyphenated american you know are you were you always puerto rican were you always irish were you meaning do you embrace that part of your ancestry or do you reject it and Mm. i very sheepishly said no i wasn't always an italian Mm. and he looked at me and he said i know all about ethnic self-hate he said when i graduated tied for number one in my law school class they told me to change a name, my name, if I wanted a job on Wall Street. Wow. And it all kind of coalesced in that. That became part of a chapter of the book. And then eventually we we had another title for the book. And it, the publicity department said, no, they didn't think it was that effective. And I said, well, what about the governor's question? Were you always an Italian? Mm. And everybody loved it. And so that's what the book became. It became this examination of ethnic identity from a number of different perspectives, from the clothes we wear to the food we eat. To, I was fascinated with dialect words, mm. um, how I grew up hearing all of these dialect words and I had no idea what they meant and I had no dictionary to define them for mm. me. So I traveled to Naples and interviewed a professor of linguistics in Naples who deciphered for me the meanings of those, of those words and, and put their place for them linguistically for me that they were not pure Southern Italian. They were a part of an Italian American lingo. So anyway, that was that exploration which created this book.
1: Did you write that book – I guess it could be a combination – but for yourself to be able to deal with those feelings and express them or for Italian-Americans to be able to connect to that and and be able to help them to deal with their feelings or a combination of both or –
3: It's a good question. I mean, I think I had both in mind. I think I was hoping, going back again to that idea of the personal and the universal, that I was hoping that my personal experience could resonate with other Italian Americans. And the the joy of that book was that a, it didn't resonate with all Italian-Americans, but it resonated with many, and that was wonderful. But it also resonated with people of other ancestries, where Caribbean women or Mexican women or, you know, because my first chapter talks about how dark my hair was and how I was always trying to get rid of the, you know, the mustache, the excess body hair, you know, all of those <laughs> things. And, um, and there were so there were women who had so many similar experiences that were from different ethnic groups and that they were able to relate to those stories. So that's always the, you know, a a feeling of of gratitude if you can write these kinds of stories and have other people, I mean obviously my primary audience was Italian American, mm-hmm. but to see if other people can relate to this experience.
2: I think this topic of ethnic identity is very interesting when you look at it across generations. Mm-hmm. I think that I'll speak for my generation, you know, a lot of what we experience, of course, is different than what what you just talked about, right? Mm -hmm. So there are overlaps and there are similarities, but I do find, to generalize, that our experiences with even the godfather and certain other stereotypes, we have, I think, because of what your generation did for us, it's less of an impact,
3: no, I totally agree with you, and I think that's an excellent point. It's more diluted, right? Is that diluted? Different? That's a yeah.
2: great word. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I I have that with my son,
3: who's now eighteen, and we joke about it all the time. Mm-hmm. That you know those movies he he enjoys as excellent movies because they don't resonate in that he doesn't have that same experience. And so he can see the, the humor in, Go- I mean, I've always loved Goodfellas as a movie, but, you know, you could just, you know, make jokes of, uh, you think I'm funny, uh, <laughs> and not have to get all caught up in right. Is this anti-Italian, Is this, this, right. you know, all of that. But I absolutely agree with you. And I think even the generation before me, the Mario Cuomo generation, were the most hurt by those stories. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, that that actually was a question that plagued his career. Could he run right. for president? because of this guilt by association notion of the mafia.
2: It's something we almost take for granted now, you know, that we're accepted as a part of society. I mean, you don't really go necessarily to apply for a job and wonder if you're not going to get it because you're Italian-American. Absolutely. But there was a time where that might have been a consideration. Right. And what I think is a wonderful thing to think
3: about, and I think Italian-Americans could be sort of leaders in this idea, is that, we can empathize with other ethnic groups who are going through this now and realize that we went through the similar experience. You know, for example, if you know, you could think about Muslim Americans and what they have had to face in America today and think about our own experience and how when Italian Americans, you know, came here in the early part of the century, you think about the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, how the larger American population uh, the elite Americans, the Anglo-Saxons, tried to paint all Italians as radical anarchists. And the damage that that did, they even got Congress to pass the Johnson-Reed Act in 1924 that prevented future generations of Southern Italians and Eastern Europeans to come to the country. So there's a real danger in these perceptions. And perhaps I think the good news is, is that Italian-Americans are at an excellent point in their experience That, as you say, Dolores, your generation can think about that very differently. And it could also be the time that we can begin to think about new Americans coming here and what maybe what our experience can help, you know, shed light on a sense of tolerance among all Americans. Well said.
1: Yeah, very interesting. So before we get in a little bit more to the history and your book about the history, let's talk a little bit about your second book old world daughter, new world mother. And this is something that Dolores and I have had many conversations about, not necessarily that specifically female instances, but just in general about the differences as we're growing older, even what we're seeing, like what I'm seeing with my kids and what I remember. And there's a lot of different layers to it and trying to preserve some of that. But talk to us a little bit about, I guess, about the theme around this book.
3: Yeah, well, that book came about after my son was born. And I realized this dilemma that I had of that as I was, you know, young and in college and reading all of this, I was very into feminist literature and this idea of women's identity and autonomy, again, a product of very much of my generation, that we were coming after that second wave of feminism and all of these changes that had happened in society to women and all the really positive things of that. And I embraced that wholeheartedly. Uh, And then after I had a child, I realized that this, this American notion of you can have it all, you know, you can have, and women can have it all, women can have everything, was fallacious, that we don't have a work structure that gives women paid leave or any kind of parental leave structure. When you compare that to other countries, other European countries, there's no social safety net that way. And so, so much of the burden is on women, especially when they're raising children. And so I wanted to write about feminism. And then when I got about 150 pages in, the book was not really working in that way for me. And I realized that the ethnic component was a huge part of it. And I returned to that because I realized that So many of the things that I had walked away from as a child, this notion of a kind of maternal sacrifice and Italian mothers are really, really good at that, (laughs) that I was all of a sudden finding myself that was inside me because that's who I am. That's how I was raised. Mm -hmm. And so that was the pull and tug. And I began to realize that there were really wonderful things about those old world traditions that we needed to also incorporate in our new world life. That sense of community over individual, that sense of time over profit, you know, this notion that we have to pay attention to our families, to our children, that we're not just completely defined by work. Um, And the more American word, independence. You know, American culture is all about being independent. And there is a sense of dependency in an Italian-American culture. That's a negative word. Let's say interdependency, where people help each other out and has this very integral unit of the family. And so that's what I wanted to explore in that book and how we could find a balance in a way between those two, what seem to me very diametrically opposed cultural beginnings, you know, the, the independence versus the community.
2: Yeah, this is such a compelling topic. As an Italian-American woman myself, of course, I feel like this theme is just, an, has been and continues to be an enormous part of my life. And my experience. And I feel like so much of growing up, there was always for me, this struggle between being independent, being modern, I was creative, you know, so I also had that artistic bent, which is, which isn't always appreciated necessarily in an immigrant family. Mm-hmm. Right? They want you to go to business yes. school, they want you to be yes. lawyers, which and you, you know, you, when you get older, you understand why, right? They went through so much, they don't want you to suffer, you know, so that dichotomy, and I feel like all my years was just the way you describe it as a pull and a tug is perfect, you know. It really feels that way. And I guess because I'm, you know, getting older myself, I think often that independence, you know, at what cost? Right. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, we have that now. And Anthony and I talk about this often, you know, I want more of the community back.
0: Yeah.
3: hmm Right. The subtitle to my book, Old World Daughter, New World Mother, is An Education in Love and Freedom. Mm. And of course, that's the pull and tug, right? There's the freedom, which is a wonderful thing, but there's also that love, that love of community and family. One gets sacrificed over the other. And right. at the time, I was actually, you know, I work in this little writing space. It's like a an urban writer's colony, we call it which is a few minutes from where I live. And I was reading all of this work. It's really it was sort of bizarrely, I was reading the political essays of a, of a Russian, Jewish, British intellectual, Isaiah Berlin. And he was informing my thinking about this book, because Berlin wrote, spent much of his life in his political philosophy, talking about how about liberal pluralism, how you had to give up To to live in a very pluralistic society, you had to give up certain values for others. You know, that my freedom may be your tyranny, you know, I mean, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said was that in all choice, there's loss. Mm. And we have to acknowledge that. And that's Mm. a very different idea than you could have at all. And so that became the exploration that we do have to make certain choices in our lives. And those choices will compromise us in certain ways, but we will also benefit from them. And a lot of American culture doesn't, Right. that's not the idea behind American culture of it's all about abundance, about anything. And we don't recognize the loss that we need to make choices and we need to accept and, and balance those, the loss in those choices that we make.
2: Mm, that is really well put. I, I don't know that I've ever framed it in that way that, you know, either way, however you make a decision, you're losing something. Right. So it's like, what do you want to lose <laughs> when right. you make exactly. that kind of decision? Exactly. So it makes me think of the PBS series, of course, The Italian Americans, for which you wrote the companion book. And there is a part where the author Pete Hamill is talking. He's remembering growing up. I don't remember what borough he grew up in, maybe the Bronx or something. And he's saying, I remember there were Italian guys my age that I grew up around. And they were bright kids. They could debate politically and they had sharp minds, but they never left the neighborhood. Uh-huh. And yeah. he says and now I don't know if it was because of la famia but you get the sense that it was. The trade-off wasn't worth it for them at right. that generation. Right. Exactly. Yes,
3: Pete was actually a former colleague of mine at the Village mm-hmm. Voice and uh, he was one- I thought he was wonderful in the documentary. Absolutely. I was really wonderful, glad yeah. that he was he was part of it and I agree with that. I think that there are it's a very difficult thing. You don't want to leave the family, the neighborhood behind. But some of us feel like we have no choice but to leave the family and neighborhood behind. I will just say very briefly, because I know there's much to talk about, but there's a new, the Italian writer, Elena Ferrante, has now just, she's kind of exploded in America. She had been writing for over a decade and she wrote four, started to be the Neapolitan trilogy, but she ended up writing four volumes. And I discovered Ferrante about over a decade ago, and I fell in love with her work. And I've been just very amused by how she's now become part of the sort of literary culture of America. I think she's a critical person for any Italian-American, especially Italian-American woman, to read. Mm-hmm. Because she is writing about this same issue, but in Naples. And what it made me understand, and I devour her work. I, I've never had a contemporary novelist speak more to me than Elena mm-hmm. Ferrante because the situation that she is writing about in southern Italy, she is the one who left the neighborhood. She's always the protagonist who became the professor and moved somewhere else in Italy. It was profound to me how our struggle is so rooted in southern Italian culture, so rooted. And I do think that those issues of family and those pressures are very different for us Italian Americans than they are for other ethnic groups.
2: 100%. We can move on, but I do want to add this just on that point that you said. There is a scene in the memoir that I wrote where I remember this very vividly. You know, my parents were very strict, it was a very old fashioned household, and I had a friend very American family. And I remember who knows what had happened. And we were out after school and I remember I was really upset. And, and she said to me, why don't you run away? (laughs) 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 And I remember just looking at her and I write about this. And I, in that moment, looking at her and thinking, she has absolutely no concept of where I come from and what my home (laughs) is. (laughs) You know, like the idea of running away is not only insane, you know, it's disrespectful, right? right? And I would never, I would never, I would never do that to my family. And I remember being like, just take me home, you know, like I I (laughs) deal with whatever's going on there. Because what you just said, I'm not remembering your exact words, but along the lines of the situation and the stakes are different for Italian Americans than many, many other people.
3: Exactly. No, that's a wonderful story. And, but you know, the word you use is, I think that is fascinating that here you are, you know, young and rebellious. Mm-hmm. And you said, but that's disrespectful, yes. right? That is, yes. that is such an Italian word. Yep. Respecto, right? I mean, the, the idea of respect is so important in our culture. You know, when I, we were growing up, my mother used to always say, well, the Americans eat this way. The mm-hmm. and I'd be mm-hmm. like, who are we? You know, we're the <laughs> <laughs> but I almost said that to you right now. I, I almost, I started to say, well, the Americans don't use the word respect. Right, no, exactly. Way. So yeah. it's, it's very funny on how um, there are aspects of Italian American culture that are so strong and profound and primal, and that's how we respond in those kinds of situations.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. I was, I remember literally thinking, this is not respectful, I can't do that, where I remember she would sneak out her window all the time, and she would do things <laughs> like that, and I'm like, that is not my life my friend.
1: (laughs) All right. So let's move on because we started talking already. We're getting into the history and your most recent book, The Italian Americans of History. It really chronicles the entire history of Italian Americans. The book is just so deep in a lot of ways. I mean, so well written. You get into so many details of every aspect of immigration and the pictures are amazing and it's really awesome. I mean, the, the entire experience of reading it was amazing. But I guess the first question before we dig into some of the content of the book is, how did you receive the honor of writing the book, which was the companion to the series, the PBS series?
3: Yeah, oh, it was a wonderful project. I used to say as we were talking about the project that I was nostalgic about it while I was working on it. <laughs> I knew how much fun it was. And I knew the minute it was over, I was going to just sink into unhappiness. Oh, I can get I, that. It was a wonderful experience. What happened was... John Maggio is the filmmaker uh, who created this documentary, and he had been working on this for many years, years before I met John. It was at least five years in the making. But during that time, and a lot of it was fundraising because they had a lot of trouble raising money for, you know, PBS wanted to do this, but then you have to go raise the money. And so they spent many years doing that. At the time, several people who were working with John, helping with the grant, working as associate producers, had reached out to me because they had read were you always an Italian, an old world daughter, new world mother, and wanted to talk to me about some of those issues, right? I was not the person they were going to about the early history of Italian-Americans, but I was the person they wanted to talk to about the last part of the documentary about Italian-American identity in ways that they could approach that. So I had wonderful conversations with them, you know, coffees and lunches, and we talked about these things. And I was extremely excited that PBS, was going to do this. It was a great thing to have a first national documentary. We've had many local ones, but not a national four hour one so anyway, a lot of the at least half of the documentary work, I guess had been complete when I uh, finally met John Maggio, who came to my apartment with the another associate producer and the crew, and they filmed me for a couple hours for the two minutes that I was in the documentary and afterward. John had asked me if I would be interested in writing the companion book. And he said, you know, even with four hours, there's just, it could not cover. Four hours could not cover what a book needs to, could cover in this. And we agreed on that and began talking about the idea. And it sounded wonderful to me. And that's how it came about. And then we went to my publisher, Norton, my wonderful editor, Elaine Mason, I thought she would be interested in this because she's very interested uh, in Italian American culture. That's a huge part of, of her identity. And they were delighted. What was really fun was it wasn't fun at the time when I had to get permission, but um, for these photos, but I also was responsible for all the photos in the book. Oh so. wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I worked work. very closely with my editor and Norton's design team on that. And that was a wonderful and that, and that to me felt like a real project of Italian craftsmanship. You know, it's like, oh, I get to really. Build a book, <laughs> which yeah. i never, I'd only written books before. I'd never also helped uh, illustrate them.
1: This is a topic that, that really needs pictures. Yeah. Because you're describing all these things of how the immigrants came over and, and the conditions that they were in and seeing it. It's a whole other dimension, which is amazing. How long did this project take, Maria?
3: Well, the problem was by the time John approached me, a lot of the documentary had been done, which that was the good news. The good news was I had the scaffolding for the book, which is that the companion book follows the documentary, you know, Got the it. story in mm-hmm. each chapter. And then I and I added a couple chapters. I really wanted to do something on the Italian-American counterculture, which I thought was really fun and interesting, and they didn't have time to do that in the documentary. But my job became one of extensive research to allow me to approach each of these stories much more deeply as you could in a book. But I had very little time. They actually were holding the documentary at that point by another six months so the book would be uh, finished. So I literally worked. I work seven days a week. I mean, with my other kinds of work that I do, but I was constantly working on this book to like get the true
2: Italian. <laughs> yes, exactly.
3: exactly. And so we just kind of plowed ahead, and uh, I, in a, about a year's time of working about seven days a week, I was able to to uh, get the book finished.
1: Well, the book is an absolute treasure, I can tell you that. I mean, if anyone wants to really dig into where we came from, how we got here, the book covers everything, and we'll just jump into a few points. One of the points that I found really interesting right right from the beginning of the book was that 50% of Italian immigrants returned home.
3: Yes, I agree with you. Yeah, what was very interesting for me was I almost did this backwards, that usually you would write a history and then write a memoir. I wrote a memoir, and then I wrote a history. (laughs) So I thought I knew a lot about Italian-American culture, but there was much that I didn't know, and that statistic was one. They were called birds of passage. you know. And I really should have realized this just thinking about my own family. I know my father's family went back and forth. It's a very similar story that Italian-Americans share. But Italian-Americans faced really just economic persecution. There was not religious persecution. I use the word persecution because the government was just non-existent and they lived in abject poverty. But they did not want to leave. They really didn't want to leave their land, but they were forced to for a South that was just getting out of control. And The majority, you know, 85% of Italian-Americans are from the South. And so they really, really wanted to go back. And over 50% of them did.
1: One good part to start with is the Rosetto. Yeah. I mean, we had Adriana Trigiani on the podcast recently. She was amazing. and
3: Yeah, I listened to her. It was great.
1: Yeah. It's funny because we didn't even talk about Rosetto because we talked about all kinds of other stuff, but...
2: <laughs> Everything else.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. It speaks to exactly what you, what you're saying. And what we said throughout so far through our talk here is these people came from Italy and they tried to just exactly recreate what was there here. And they did it and it lasted for some time. And there's some great quotes about it in the book. In fact, I'm just going to read real quick something here that Adriana said in your book. She said, you shopped local. It was grown local. But here's the thing that always got me about Rosetto. There was never a want. If somebody canned peppers, they brought you a couple of quarts. Also, nothing was ever wasted. Everything in the hands of these women became a delicacy. When we would come in from mowing the lawn or doing some chores for my grandmother, she would take the dandelion greens that she had picked, toss them in olive oil, and then poach eggs in her gravy in the red sauce and ladle those eggs, fresh eggs, over the greens and serve it with bread. You will never eat anything more delicious. Yes. <laughs> think, she, says, she says, think about them. The meal even cost 15 cents. And again, all that just speaks to stuff that we've been talking about is these people are together. When you read in the book, The bakeries were in the basements. They built their own church. They built their own school. And then as the generations passed, kids started going to college. They started realizing, I I don't want to just stay in this small little community anymore. There's other things for me to see. And that's kind of like a little bit of that tug that we talked about.
3: Right. I love that you picked out that line because I love that line too. (laughs) I was like, like, that's Such a great image of the dandelions. And, of course, I wanted to eat that after she had finished describing (laughs) it.
2: And we should say really quickly that Adriana grew up in Rosetto. That's right. That's right.
3: So it was amazing that that I Mm -hmm. had not realized that, you know, knowing her her work, I didn't know she was from, uh, you know, I didn't make that connection at first. So, yeah, so she was really interesting to talk to her about that or see what what she had to say. But what's so interesting about the Rosetto story is that it was a story larger than just – the kids wanting to move away, that it actually affected the health of the community. Right. But that was what was really incredible, that these two doctors, these cardiologists, had heard that people in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, were living longer. This was in the 1960s, than the rest of America. They weren't dying from heart disease. And this was at a time when heart disease was a leading killer, especially among men in America, and there were very few uh, they did not have the tools that they had today in, in fighting heart disease. So these doctors were very interested in looking at this community and trying to figure out what was going on, why the rates of heart disease were so low. Uh, So they began to, as you would do in any health study, you look at all the different factors, and they looked at genetics. They traced rosettins from other parts of the country. They had the same rates of heart disease as the rest of Americans. They looked at the, the health system. Did they have a different set of hospitals or doctors? No, they shared the same doctors as their Welsh and German neighbors who had higher rates of heart disease. They looked at the diet. Was it the Mediterranean diet? Well, they may have started, came to America with using, thinking of the Mediterranean diet, but, you know, La Bandanza, everything that was in America, quickly Mm. changed to this really heavy meat, sausage, pepperoni, you know, everything Mm -hmm. on those pizzas, no longer that elegant pizza bianco with olive oil and salt and rosemary. One of my favorite lines in the documentary, in one of the people that John had interviewed, was this older man who said, yeah, you know, we ate everything. We ate things that weren't good for us. But, you know, if I have to go, I want to go with a meatball. On my <laughs> <mind.">
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember I that. Just,
3: I love that line. So these doctors realized that what was going on, that it was this community, the kind of community that Adriana describes where people helped one another and there was always a support and you felt that you were not isolated, that you were part of a community. And it was an amazing health study. The National Institute of Health is actually spending time again in Rosetto today to look at that that study Mm -hmm. because it was really a first that community could affect health. And there is a a sort of funny part of the Rosetto story, though, that I go into in the book, which is that, and it has to do with my sort of larger way I like to think about ethnicity and ethnic groups, which is that I think we have to be very clear-eyed about what we're writing about, and we could never get lost in nostalgia, because I think that's dangerous for any writer to get lost in romanticism or nostalgia. And I began to do that as I was researching Rosetto, because I was thinking, my God, this is amazing. You know, when you begin to think, well, you know, what is it about us that we're so different than these other ethnic groups who come? And there was a great egalitarian culture. People, the rich, did not they lived in modest homes. They had modest cars. Nobody flaunted their wealth. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe Italian-Americans are just like more egalitarian than other cultures. And we just became, you know, corrupted by larger American culture. And then I discovered this really fascinating fact. I, at the same time, these two doctors were doing the health study. An Italian uh, woman from Rome, anthropologist, was also researching Rosetto. And I learned through her book that the reason why the culture was so modest was because they were terrified of the evil eye. I mean, terrified Mm. of, you know, Malo. Yes. That if you were too successful, you would have the evil eye upon you. And they created potions to ward off the evil eye. They would show her these potions. The evil eye is a deeply, deeply aspect of Neapolitan culture from the wealthiest Neapolitans to the poorest Neapolitans. They believe deeply in the evil eye. So it began to show me that, of course, this was another aspect of Italian American culture too, that we did inherit this very medieval culture and we brought that with us that those immigrants would be so worried that what they had could bring on the evil eye. And it made me realize that there are many reasons why you couldn't replicate a culture like Rosetto mm. today. But of course, that's the dilemma, right? Is that when the, the young people left and went off to school and the rate of heart disease just accelerated again, and they had the same heart disease as everyone else in America. So yes, back to what we were talking about before, what is lost, what is gained, the choices that we make, and the fact that in all choice, there is loss.
1: I think I made some notes and took some of the words from your book and and made a note that said something along the lines of, community matters, materialism kills. (laughs) Why don't we get that back? Can we bring that back? Dolores and I always talk about this, like, is there any way that they'll be able to be that community in more areas in the U.S. And like we interviewed Dr. Schelsa down at the Italian American Museum in New York City, and he wants to bring stuff like that back. In fact, he said he's going to do some Sunday dinners there. And so it's good to see that people are trying to do things to revive the community or keep it going where it still is, because it's obvious that it was so important. And, you know, we've gotten away from a lot of it because of different kind of world we live in. But that was interesting. That was really, really kind of profound takeaway from the book. Another thing that I want to mention in the book that I found to be interesting, again, I'm trying to bring up just some of the bigger points that were kind of eye-opening, was the idea between Southern and Northern Italian immigrants. So what I learned in the book was that a lot of the Northern, most of the Northern Italian immigrants went to California Mm -hmm. from Genoa and different places because that's where they were able to get to. And then the Southern Italians came mostly on the East Coast, New York. There was a large Sicilian bunch of immigrants came to New Orleans and worked in the plantations, which I also found to be interesting. Yes, There's a lot covered in the book, and we've talked about this on the show a little bit before, about the differences between the Southern and the Northern Italian immigrants. There's times in California where there was a lot of back and forth when the Sicilians went out there, but then they kind of ended up getting along together. But really what's interesting in the book is that there's a whole, I think, section or a part of one of your chapters on on the Southern Italians and how there's multiple pieces of literature on how they were considered lower than like human beings.
3: Yes. And that prejudice, uh, sadly, still exists in Italy today. In Italy, there is a classism that can border on racism, on how the North feels toward the South. It's come out politically in the Northern League, which is now also spread to other immigrant groups. But to your point, Anthony, yes, it's astounding. And one of the things in my research that I found so appalling was how the American establishment, academic establishment, uh, could write books. That I quote a man named Edward Allsworth Ross, who wrote a book called The Old World and the New. This is at the turn of the century. He, was a, he taught at Stanford. He taught at Cornell. He was a, a chair in his department in sociology. And he writes this book on um, talking about how inferior the Southern Italian is, produces it as this is fact. And says that, you know, for anyone who thinks that these immigrants are ever going to be artistic at all, or going to be at all like the Venetians or the Tuscans, please think twice. These are inferior Southerners. And something that struck me very deeply was he put in italics that Southern Italians were utterly sterile as creators of beauty. Whoa. I thought, wow.
1: We showed him.
3: <laughs> and, you know, when I think about Italian-American culture today and think about the directors and Absolutely. Scorsese and Coppola and all of the actors and, and all of the ways and singers in which that's what they've been about. They've been creators of beauty. When the PBS came out, I thought, you know, I'd love to create a hashtag, but it's hard to just create something. It needs to go on. Just called creators of beauty and have Southern Italians talk about who their favorite creator of beauty is. Because that was the prejudice that was against us, and that persisted for many, many generations. This is what the Anglo-Saxon elite thought of Southern Italians. And that kind of sense of shame that I perceived up into the 70s when I was growing up, I find, is an extension. I really believe that when you have these kinds of cultural beliefs, they take very, very long time to fully eradicate that from the culture. You know, we had had those remnants that... uh that began back then. His descriptions are appalling. He describes the steerage passengers from Naples with these ridiculous descriptions of how slack their jaws are. And then he says, and they have backless heads. And I remember writing the book, what is a backless?
2: Yeah, what head? is that?
3: <laughs> and who is the heads who are picking, you know, the university faculty at that time? <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it didn't even make sense what he was writing. The, the prejudice was just seeping out of the, his book. It was incredible.
2: I mean, to your point, I think that, again, that I think, like, my generation might be the first to really be able to reap the work of those many years that it took, right, to eradicate, or maybe not eradicate, but alleviate, distill, as you said before, that kind of thinking. We had a, a meeting with the director of the National Italian American Foundation recently, and we were talking, and one thing he said, it was just totally in passing, he just mentioned that The National Italian American Foundation was, of course, started in the 70s, which was something I knew, right? I knew they'd recently celebrated their 40th anniversary. And then he started to talk about the reason it was begun was because that was just before the 80s when people like your Mario Cuomo's and such were really just busting down the door Mm -hmm. to kind of like rush us into American culture and it it kind of just struck me wow that really wasn't that long ago at all yeah that's true. you know that that had to happen in order for me to do what i do now
3: mhm no i think that's absolutely true i think and that the writing the book gave me that perspective that i didn't right. have before that if you look the 20th century was an unbelievably tumultuous time and italian americans we were caught in that we were caught in history we were caught in fascism we were caught in mussolini we were caught nice. in the world war where we were fighting italy and that's what our grandparents our parents our grandparents our great grandparents experienced and that's how they became part of american culture and of course we would feel the effects of that and that they would be more diluted over time but it's true it's taken i would say you know a century for italian americans to really come into their own in that way
1: you basically, I think, summarized the book for me perfectly in that it gives you perspective because we hear a lot of stories. And Dolores and I, luckily, have been able to talk to people that have told us a little bit more about you know, what a lot of the Italian immigrants went through. But until you've actually read a book like this that has the details in it, you have, you really have no idea. I mean, it was like the, the circumstances, the things that they went through. Specific instances, the stuff that happened down in New Orleans with the police chief that was killed, and- right?
3: Italian Americans being lynched, right? Who yeah. thought that? Yeah, I agree. This was new to me
1: too. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was so eye opening, like so many different aspects of it. And I think the other point too, and I know we'll, we'll wrap up soon here. We've been talking quite a bit, but the other point that really drove home for me, and Dolores and I have also talked about this even with Adriana Trigiani a little bit, was how much has been lost because Italian families don't speak about these things. They don't want to divulge these things. And and there was a really, really, I guess you could say deep part of this book, the history where you talked about a young girl that was kidnapped. Maybe you could just talk about that a little bit.
3: Oh, the Lori Fabiano story with the black hand. Yeah, Yeah, that was amazing. Well, when the immigrants came here, it was, they stayed in there. They were very isolated I think one thing that's important to think about in thinking about Italian-American history and Italian-American culture is that our situation was very, very different, even from Southern Europe and certainly from Western Europe. The poverty was much greater. The the illiteracy was much higher. So you can't even compare the Italian-American experience to the Spanish experience or even in some ways the Greek experience because, you know, the Spanish were colonizing the Southern Italians. It It was a brutal, abject poverty. So when the immigrants came here, they were very, very distrustful of any kind of government. They stayed by themselves and they were preyed upon by other Italians who decided to, they were going to resort to crime in order to to make a life here. And one of the early gangs, I mean, all immigrant groups had gangs, Irish had gangs too, but was the Black Hand. And the Black Hand just created havoc in Little Italy in the early part of the century where you basically had to pay them uh, money to keep your businesses open. And Lori Fabiano tells the story in the documentary, which she also wrote about in her book, Elizabeth Street, which is an excellent book, which is a novelization of what happened to her family, that her great-grandmother was kidnapped by the Black Hand because her grandparents refused to pay protection money their store to the black hand. In the same way, the you know, the mafia would do in Naples today, you know, you own a restaurant, you give a percentage to the mafia that sadly still exists in large parts of Naples. Well, that happened here. And the immigrants suffered terribly from that. I mean, this notion that you would be kidnapped by the black hand by your own people, that's what was so, so painful about it. One thing that those kinds of stories and that history really does make me appreciate is this combination of the Italian tradition with the American civic tradition. Today, the mafia is like a remnant of whatever. You know, the Italian mafia barely exists. There are other organized crime groups that are much stronger, much more powerful. That was able to happen because we had an American civic structure. Many Italian Americans going into law enforcement, becoming prosecutors, And they created laws like RICO, which devastated organized crime. And you can see the difference between here and Italy, where organized crime is a huge part of a problem of the South today. And it really makes you appreciate these parts of of American civic culture combined with Italian American culture and how you can really confront and change a problem in that way. Mm. Part of the reason why no Italian Americans don't want to talk is because they do want to put those stories behind them. There was a real ugliness to that past. And if you come from a group of people who innately distrust the government because they had no government in southern Italy and believe that the family is the strongest, you know, trust only the family. There's a reason. There's a reason why that. I remember growing up, my mother always said that trust only the family, blood is thicker than water, you know, another one. And this is, you know, the way I I think about this book is I, I like to just Pointed as our histories ourselves, that we don't, if for order, in order for us to fully understand who we are, we need to understand that history because that, no matter what generation we are, that history has influenced a part of who we are.
2: Mm. You know, well said. I am very interested in that aspect of history. And I think that your book, The Italian Americans, is really a service toward that. I'm interested in the aspect of it that is healing, that makes us whole. Yes. You know, I was fortunate to grow up uh, always wanting, maybe it's the writer in me, I always wanted to hear the stories of my family from a very young age. And I was fortunate to grow up with parents who who would tell me them, you know, not all of them. When I got older, I heard some more of them, right? They were careful what they told me, but they're in the introduction to your book. I just want to read very quickly and then ask you to speak to this point. Recent psychological research suggests that children who know their family history may experience a higher self-esteem and stronger sense of control because they are able to participate in a narrative larger than the individual self and nuclear family. It seems hardly a leap to imagine that adults, too, benefit from knowing their past. So was wondering if you just talk a little bit about that aspect.
3: Yeah, no, I think you raise a really good point about the healing aspect. And I think it's wonderful that you grew up in a family of storytellers and Mm. wanting to tell these stories. And that became a part of who you are and Mm. how you see yourself and now how you're writing about that. But I, I do believe that very strongly. Those kinds of research, psychological research, I find fascinating. I'm always reading about that whenever I, you know, see stories like this and this notion that studies have been done that show that children do have a larger sense of self when they have this notion of narrative. Of course, it makes sense. These things, often I think science proves things that we innately know. Right,
2: (laughs) right, yes.
3: And so I do think there is this innate sense, and I think this is the sense that you feel, this sense of healing, that, of course, it makes sense that if we are part of something that's larger than ourselves, we are going to have a more certain place in this world. The world is a cruel place, you know, right. we know and we need as much fortification as possible. And that's where the American, this failure, uh, I think, comes in at this idea that it's all about independence. Independence can take you so far, but it can also leave you cold. You just think about that, that warmth of the family is the image opposite to that, right? So this notion of interdependence, of a larger narrative, of this sense of connection, I think is very strong and is, is very profound.
1: Where can um, the listeners kind of find you or connect with you or find your books? What's the best place for them to go?
3: Well, you know, you can always get it on Amazon. You can always get those online. I always like to support brick and mortar bookstores. But um, I think the Italian-Americans would probably still be there. Some of the other books, they would probably have to order if they're not on the shelves. But, you know, everything's on, on Amazon.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, Maria, we thank you so much for taking the time for publishing these these pieces of work. Yeah. They've been really, we've, we've enjoyed them so much. And yeah. and we hope that uh, this episode, I'm sure, will have an impact on the listeners.
2: Oh,
3: well, thank you. And thank you for your incredibly thoughtful questions. I appreciate having the time to talk about this.
2: Thank you, Maria.
1: All right, now it's time for the Italian-American stories segment. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Maria. Now it's time for the Italian-American story segment, and this is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family's gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or story from either one of our relatives or one of your relatives, and in fact... I'm happy that one of our listeners actually recorded one for us for this episode. This is the first time we had one from a listener. And you can record yours if you go to italianamericanpodcast.com. There is a tell your story tab on the right side, which allows you up to three minutes of recording, or you can just record your own MP3 and you can send it to Anthony at italianamericancentral.com or Dolores at italianamericancentral.com. And in today's clip, you're going to hear a very nice story from a gentleman named Ben, who's been a fan of our show since the beginning. He actually is a writer for La Gazeta, and we're actually going to be featured coming up very soon in their, one of their upcoming issues. But this is a very touching story about his mother's return to trip back to Italy. So here it is.
0: My maternal grandmother completely missed the Great Depression, and that's where my mother's story begins. Mom's mom, Grandma DiTana, died in childbirth in 1928, before the stock market crashed a year later. This loss was of great consequence for my mother, Frances, who was six years old at the time. When Mom's mom died, Grandpa gave the now motherless baby, Uncle Mario, to Mrs. DiSalvo to raise. Mom, another brother, and a sister, Uncle Joey and Aunt Norma, Stayed with Grandpa. Whatever immediate memories my mother held of her mother soon faded. In a few years, the dead woman's trousseau, dresses, and personal photographs disappeared. So for many years, my mother longed for an object, some touchable memento of her mother. This wish would be fulfilled in 1973. During a family trip to Grandma Ditanas' hometown of Capragotta in the mountains of Molise. There, a relative was safeguarding a precious family heirloom, safe from World War II. You see, from September 1943 through May 1944, the German army maintained the Gustav Line, a defensive front high in the Apennines. Its purpose was to prevent the Allies from liberating Rome. Behind the line, the Germans employed a scorched-earth policy to deny the U.S. and British armies any use of Capricotta. As fall turned into winter, German troops systematically destroyed most of the town's buildings. The women and children lived in the cemetery, or in the church, where they passed a horrible, horrible time. The men hid in the neighboring forest to avoid being pressed into service by the Nazi SS. When my parents and sister visited Italy for the first time in 1973. They stayed for a while in Capricotta with Zia Letta, my mother's aunt. The fresh mountain air and the company of family members made for a very enjoyable stay. My sister reports that one day, as she and my parents were sitting with Zia in her kitchen, the old aunt drew my mother's attention to a spot down the street. It was the ruins of a house destroyed in the war by the Germans. Zia motioned. That was the place that belonged to your mother's family. Then she turned and pointed to an antique sugar bowl resting in her china cabinet. Francis, she said. It was your mother's before she left for America. Take it. It was one of the very few things to survive the grenade that took down the house. All along I've been saving it for you. Well, for some gifts, tears are the best thanks. Lovingly wrapped in multiple layers of an Italian newspaper, the precious sugar bowl safely made the trip back to Girard, Ohio, to sit proudly for almost three decades in my parents' china closet. Now at my sister's house after mom's death, his family heirloom never ceases to amaze and to instruct about death, love, war, and connections.
1: I hope you enjoyed Ben's story. Remember, you can send us your stories and really we want to connect with you in any way we possibly can. We've been very active on the social media. So with that, let Dolores take us out today with just to reminding you how you can connect with us.
2: All right, Amici. You can find us on Instagram at Italian American. You can also use hashtag ItalianAmericanCentral. We are on Twitter at ITALAmerican. I T A L American, and we are on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Va bene.